Good morning, uh, and good to see you all. I'll invite you to turn to Ecclesiastes. You can turn there in your bulletins. We also, uh, you can also turn there in your Bibles. Um, and we're going to be starting in Ecclesiastes 3, verses 16 and 17. Pastor Lee Jong Rock and his wife Shunja live in Seoul, South Korea, with their uh, daughter uh, and uh, their son. And uh, when they had their daughter, they uh, they had their second child, their son, uh, who came out of the womb severely disabled. His care required and still requires constant attention. And they spent a great deal of time in the hospital with him for the first 15 years of his life. In fact, uh, the medical bills were so high that they had to sell their house, and they lived, for the most part, in the hospital. Along the way, they began to notice all of the other disabled children that did not have the care of a mother and a father. Uh, They were, uh, in some cases, left behind, abandoned, and uh, disabled children, handicapped children, were drawn to Pastor Lee and his wife. Uh, once they moved out of the hospital, um, Pastor Lee and Shunja continued to notice all of the abandoned children all over Seoul, and most of them were handicapped. Most of them were they were they had some kind of birth defect or or handicap, and um, they were dying before the police could get to them. In some cases, they were brought to Pastor Lee and Shunja's house because they knew of their heart for children with uh, conditions like this. And so Pastor Lee realized, he says, if I don't do something to protect these children, they will die at my gate. And so he got creative. He uh, used his carpentry skills uh, to, to build a baby box. He got this idea from watching a news report coming out of the Ukraine where there was a baby box built for desperate mothers who had nowhere else to go and who would otherwise abandon their children on the streets. And so he said, what if we built that for, uh, for available 24 hours right here in Seoul? And so uh, he installed it on the front of his house, and he wrote above it, baby box, and then Psalm 2710, even if my mother and my father forsake me, the Lord will take me in. And he prayed a prayer. He said, Lord, I don't want this baby box to be used, but if there is a child that would otherwise go abandoned, if this is the absolute last hope, let this be the way you open the door for them. Open this door for those babies. And he just trusted it to God. And then what happened was babies started showing up. You can watch the documentary to to hear the bell. There's a bell that he designed when there's a baby that's placed inside the box at any hour of the day. Wakes everyone up. He goes rushing down the stairs. He opens it up. He, he picks up the baby, and he sometimes takes the, the, um, the clothes or the cloths that are covering the baby's face, and he just says, thank you, God. Thank you, God, for this baby. Thank you for this life. And then he prays a blessing over the baby that uh, he or she will grow up uh, to be cared for, to have parents, to know the love of God. Um, now, Pastor Lee and his wife are, in the documentary, I think they're in their late 50s or early 60s. Um, they're in their 60s now. They've adopted 15 of those kids. Now, hundreds of kids have come through the baby box, and some have been placed in homes, and some have been placed in orphanages, but they've adopted um, 
uh, 15 of the kids. The documentary uh, called The Dropbox, which you can buy for a few bucks online and watch it, it shows Pastor Lee and his wife doing all kinds of creative things with their kids. I mean, they're like dressing up like Santa Claus and coming through with the presents and taking them to Taekwondo, taking them to the aquarium. Um, There's a a scene towards the beginning of the documentary where Pastor Lee is like on the ground, like on on his back with all his limbs in the air. Like the kids are like jumping on him and he's wrestling them. And it's just really clear that they're radiating life, and they're just so grateful for life. Um, one thing that struck me was that Pastor Lee and Shunja demonstrate two qualities that you don't often see together, and those qualities are justice and joy. On the one hand, they're people of justice. They, they like, see what's invisible to everyone else. In their case, abandoned babies, many of them handicapped, Down syndrome, brain lesions, some kind of, um, some kind of uh, birth defect of like missing limbs, missing fingers. Um, and, and they give their lives to come around and protect and love those vulnerable in society. So they notice them, they give their lives to protect them. In fact, um, there was a, one of the earliest um, babies that Pastor Lee took care of, her name was Hannah, She's very high needs. She, it took her like three hours a day to, or three hours, two or three hours at a time just to eat one meal because the food went through her throat, but he would feed her. And when she passed away, he, he was so distraught and he prayed, he said, God, I will die for these children. And the baby box would follow. So they're people of justice and, and they still are, even though they've, they've, um, they were able to buy a, house, a larger house. Um, they still take care of those kids. On the other hand, they're people of joy. I mean, they're creative, they're loving, they're playful, they're smiling, getting kids to smile. I mean, their lives are just compelling. And you don't see them like shaming society or shaming the mothers or shaming the problem, shaming people who don't see what they see. They don't shame people who don't carry the burdens they carry. They just at most, just say, hey, you want to come live with us? They invited the document, you know, person filming the documentary, hey, just come live with us for a while. He slept on the floor for like six months and got sick when the kids got sick. And just, he was expecting some controversial, hard-hitting documentary about Korean society. What he got was joy, and that's what comes through. In our day, it seems like a life of justice is mutually exclusive from a life of joy, doesn't it? Like you have to choose between the two. Either you can live with joy, you can just live with that creativity and that sense that all is well and overflow with gratitude for all you have, enjoy the moment, enjoy great food, enjoy life, have a great time and be happy. But there's a growing belief that that's just a result of privilege, that you're not committed enough to those who are suffering if you're happy. that you're being willfully ignorant of all of the injustice in the world. You can kind of live with joy, or you can live with justice, like seeing the problems that others don't see, giving your life to protect the vulnerable and the marginalized, but that means carrying a heavy burden and staying vigilant to any aggression against the marginalized in yourself or in other people and confronting it with a sense of edge and indignation and agitation. 
So it's like you can either live with joy, which is, um, you know, kind of selfish, or you can live with justice, uh, which is the righteous way, but you can't be both. You can't be both. That's the assumption, at least, in some cases. Now, the faithful skeptic of Ecclesiastes is going to mess with that either-or choice that we sometimes think we can make. He knows that joy and justice are not mutually exclusive. What I appreciate about this, this teacher, this preacher, this wise man, is that he's so keen uh, in observing human nature. He watches people. He knows the human heart. He understands how institutions work, too. And that's going to really actually give him some credibility to question some of our assumptions about keeping joy and justice separate. My hope is that even if you don't agree with his conclusions, you can benefit from his insights. And also that um, your perspective on justice will become more nuanced in a good way. And you'll see some inroads into joy as well. Um, I think that the preacher actually helps us understand how God sees things and understand God's heart for justice and God's capacity for joy. The first thing that the preacher is going to notice is that injustice is pervasive. Injustice is so pervasive. It acts like a parasite on institutions. It acts like a parasite on otherwise well-meaning people. And it can turn good places into unjust places. It can compromise all of us. Um, In chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, he lays it out very plainly. I mean, he's not going to mince words here. He's going to say in verse 16 of chapter 3, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, I mean, the very place that you would look to to protect society, even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, I mean, wherever the sacred spaces are, Man, I saw that even in those sacred spaces where you would really want to trust the leadership, where you'd really want to trust that things are going well, even there was wickedness. And I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. This last year, we've seen our fair share of injustice acting like a parasite on, uh, injustice acting like a parasite on places of justice and on places of righteousness, that there's been wickedness that creeps in to institutions and into people that we we look to to protect justice, to protect the marginalized and the vulnerable. Um, You know, we think about um, in the last year, we've heard sickening reports of organized child abuse from priests, from doctors, and from other trusted adults. What's worse is that it's the cover-up. The cover-up is just as bad as the abuse, as the institutions come around and try to protect its own instead of holding people in power accountable. And just this last month, we've seen troubling reports about corruption among Chicago's aldermen and Illinois lawmakers. We've known that there was uh, the smell of corruption, but now we can read about it. Um, And... Just recently, the police officer who killed Laquan McDonald with 16 shots received a prison sentence of 6.5 years. Um, There's been, maybe you would have your own stories of news reports that you've read of, of sacred spaces or places of justice that have been corrupted by the pervasive nature of injustice. And why is this? Why is this that uh, 
it's so pervasive. And the reason is that wherever there's institutions, there are people. And wherever there's people, there's the human heart. And wherever there's the human heart, there are dark and forgotten corners where injustice can grow like a fungus and take over the whole thing and corrupt the whole plant, corrupt the whole person, corrupt the whole institution. Maybe it starts with sadness, a sadness of feeling unseen, a feeling unappreciated for all that you do, and then that sadness starts to metastasize into greed, and then that greed becomes outright graft. And before you know it, you're making quid, quid pro quo exchanges that hurt the cause of the poor. Or maybe it starts with just like loneliness. Who among us have not felt lonely before? But then that loneliness starts to grow like a fungus into self-pity. And that turns into lust. And it's just a sense of deserving someone else's connection in a way that God hasn't uh, ordained. And 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 then that lust becomes a, a harassment of a subordinate that we have power over. Injustice is pervasive. Yes, there are pockets of pure evil. Um, But even in the institutions that we look to to protect us from injustice, there can be wickedness and there can be corruption. I think this helps us understand Jesus' teaching on the Sermon on the Mount when he says, hey, it's one thing to not commit adultery. It's one thing to not kill. But look, you've got to be healed and reformed all the way down to your anger and all the way down to your lust. And Jesus had a heart for taking the poison out of our souls, the part of us that has the capacity for injustice. Given the right opportunity, we could all do it. Given the right, tra- given the right malformation, we could all perpetuate injustice. Um, but given the right grace, given the grace of Jesus and training under his grace, we can become people of joyful justice. So human uh, injustice is pervasive. It can go anywhere. It kind of deconstructs a little bit the good guy versus bad guy, doesn't it? It helps us see that we're not immune. The celebrities we look to are not immune. The, the people that we trust are not immune. None of us are. Um, so we need grace for this. But the second part is that injustice creates human misery. Not only is it pervasive, but it really does grind people down. Um, we might even call it hell on earth. You know what? Whatever you think of injustice, however of a handle you have on how bad things are in the world, it's worse than you think, and it's worse than you know. It's worse than, it's worse than any of us have the capacity to fully grasp and understand. Um, so look with me at uh, Ecclesiastes 4, verse 1. Again, he's going to say it like it is. Again, I saw the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. So like not only are they experiencing the deep and profound loss of justice, but they're alone. And, And this is so true. You know, people who are suffering often feel so alone in their suffering. Part of it is because they don't have access to those who could comfort them. Uh, They don't have the connection. They don't have the opportunities 
to receive that. But here's another thing the preacher notices, that it's miserable for the oppressors as well. And this is reflecting um, the same insight that Martin Luther King had about racism, that it doesn't just hurt people on the receiving end of racism, that racism hurts the racist, that, race, that racism hurts that there's a sense of bondage that the racist has, that they need to be delivered as well. He says in the second half of verse one, on the side of the oppressors, there was power and there was no one to comfort them. If you think about society like a quilt, a beautiful quilt as God intended it, where all of us are meaningfully connected to one another and you have gifts to bring to the table that others can benefit from. And you also have uh, some, some access to, to food, to care, to education, that no one is taking more than their fair share. What injustice does is it rips the stitches of that quilt. Uh, it rips it so that we can no longer exchange value. We can no longer be in community. That uh, those who have are separate from the have-nots, and that there's oppression between the two rather than community between the two. And this isn't the way it was supposed to be. But as you know, as you've probably seen, there's, there's like unspeakable uh, uh, injustice all around you that you can't, with the snap of your fingers, make it all go away because it's so multi-layered and it requires a restitching. Um, he says in verses two and three, he's like, look, the dead are better off than the people who are miserable. And in fact, people who were never born are better off, which existentially think speaking is kind of like hard. But anyway, it's just like he's making a point. It's just miserable. Um, I was reading the story of someone who is, uh, had a beautiful story of recovery when she was uh, at a, um, a treatment center that is uh, one of our leaders works at. Um, in the suburbs, and I was undone by the level, the gut-wrenching level of abuse that she suffered, not just at the hands of her father, but her father's associates, and it was over years and years. Um, I couldn't believe, actually, the level of evil that that story described. Um, One lawyer in our congregation says this. She says, work in justice fields requires someone to confront and expose evil, uh, which has a significant impact on our souls. We spend our days exposed to those who lie, cheat, and prey on the vulnerable in new ways. This line of work can leave you skeptical, distrusting, and jaded. Um, And I think what she's describing is maybe what you've experienced in your own life, which is just compassion fatigue, where you wanna go up against injustice, you wanna confront the evil people who are, um, who are taking from the poor, preying on weakness. You also want to care for those who have suffered from that. But like, over, like we have limits, don't we? We have emotional limits, physical limits, spiritual limits, relational limits, time limits. I mean, we're so limited as human beings. But I mean, the work of justice is like, like from our perspective at least, totally unlimited. It's huge. It's vast. And we can throw ourselves against it, and it can crush us. Um, You know, uh, Jesus faced this. He 
performed all kinds of acts of justice. He spent time with hungry, needy people. In some cases, he fed them. In many cases, he touched social outcasts in a way they had not been touched before. He touched them with a healing, uh, a fr- uh, uh, the touch of a friend and a savior and a doctor. And he gave them healing and he gave them something to do in each case. He, he, uh, he gave them meaningful work. Um, he welcomed in children that other people wanted to shoo away. And of course, in his life and in his death, he was committing himself to solving injustice. But you know what he did a lot is that if you read the Gospels, you see a rhythm. He's engaging in the work of justice, and then he's withdrawing. He's disengaging to go be alone with his father and to recharge with friends, having dinner at their home in Bethany, just outside Jerusalem. He never lost his joy in all of his justice work. He never lost his joy. Um, And his compassion for the oppressed and the oppressor alike uh, never went out. You and I are uh, we're limited, and some of us think that if I can get to the point of exhaustion and pain and anger, then I've really done my job. And it's just not the way of Jesus. So injustice is pervasive. It's also, it's very miserable, creates misery, and it's hard to face. Uh, finally, it distorts our view of reality. It's like a funhouse mirror, except it's, a, it's, a, it's an awful, terrible mirror because it turns everything upside down and inside out. We can't see reality rightly, and sometimes it means that people who should be praised are forgotten, and people who should be put in jail are praised. He says in chapter 8, verse 10, uh, then I saw the wicked buried. Then I saw the wicked buried. We can almost see, you know, the, the preacher standing a distance away from a from a funeral service for someone he knew was wicked. And here's what he says. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. This is also vanity. Uh, Bill Meyer this week mentioned like, you know, the funerals that you go to of the people that you know they were totally like jerks. And yet everyone's saying all they can say is nice things about them. Um. Sometimes the wrong people are praised. I remember a few years ago going to uh, England, touring Westminster Abbey, and noticing that good and evil people, like clearly good and evil people, were buried right next to each other. It's like all of the elite of England, as long as you're interesting, you get buried there. So on the one hand, you have Elizabeth I, known for her religious tolerance. Who's she buried right next to? Mary I known for murdering Anglicans who loved the Bible. You've got Sir Isaac Newton. He's a a physicist, someone who advanced human civilization in a meaningful way. You've got him buried in the same building as Edward I, a racist who persecuted and killed Scots. Um, And so they all get buried in Westminster Abbey. Why? Not for any moral reasons. It's just like how important they were. Is that how things should be? Um, now, who am I to judge the English? But we all have our ways of doing this. We, we look up to people who uh, are unjust, and our society puts people forward and even calls them paragons of justice when they're doing the exact opposite. Who is a good person? Age-old question. You know what injustice does? It, it warps our view of reality so we can't even answer that question correctly. Well, the powerful are good people. 
Who's worthy of your attention? Who do you pay attention to? Do you pay attention to just the people who are just and righteous? Or do you pay attention to people who are interesting and unjust? He says in verse 11, the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily. The heart of, uh, because of that, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. What's he saying? He's saying people do stuff because it's legal. Even if it's perpetuating injustice, it's legal, right? So must be okay. So just injustice drains our moral knowledge so that we can no longer operate with it. So at the end of the day, it turns out that you were right from the very beginning. You've been right since childhood. You've been right since your sibling took the food from the fridge that belonged to you, and that is life isn't fair. You've been saying it for years, and it turns out you were right. Verse 11 of chapter 9, if you skip down there, uh, Ecclesiastes 9, verse 11. Again, I saw that under the sun, the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to them all. What's he saying? He's like, look, it, first of all, bad stuff happens to everybody. There's no getting around it. Second of all, you don't get by because of your merits. When we are falling behind, we feel the injustice of life. When we're advancing, we just assume, well, this is just because I've made all good choices in my life. I mean, delayed gratification is just playing itself out in all areas of life. But the preacher's going, like, life isn't fair. There are people who don't deserve opportunities that get opportunities. And there are people who make beautiful, amazing, mind-blowing art, and it goes, it's obscure forever. There's all kinds of... Uh, inequalities all over the place. Life is not fair. So why does the preacher go into this depth? He talks a lot about injustice. I was surprised to see the amount of content here in this book. Um, We need to know about the reckoning that's coming. The preacher knows about the reckoning that's coming. Um, And this is why he says this in chapter 8, verse 12. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times, and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before him. And this is the beginning of wisdom that Proverbs talks about, the fear of God. Verse 13, but it will not be well with the wicked because uh, neither will he prolong his days like a shadow because he does not fear before God. The preacher sees justice coming for the wicked, rolling like rushing waters, and that's going to deal decisively with Uh, all the things that they've taken from the poor and the marginalized. Um, This is what makes the preacher so wise. On the one hand, he sees very clearly all the injustice um, under the sun, but he also sees very clearly the God of justice who is above the sun, and he knows that the two are going to clash. He knows that the two are going to reckon, and he knows that ultimately injustice will meet Justice personified. And I appreciated that one pastor who talked about the two comings of Jesus in this light. You know, the first reckoning with injustice came the first time Jesus came like a lamb. And he came and he entered into our vulnerability, into a world of infanticide, into a world of hate, into a world of Roman occupation. And um, he died, a, he lived a life where, where um, he didn't receive everything he deserved. And 
he stood um, taking an illegal sentence and dying a death of unjust torture and unjust cruelty for us to take our place as the Lamb of God who was slain for all of the injustice. Um, Now, that's the first reckoning. He did that to take all the poison out of our hearts, to deal by grace with everything that, given the opportunity, would take advantage of the poor. Um, But there's a second reckoning coming. The second reckoning is when Christ comes as a lion. He comes as the judge. He comes as the king. In the words of the Advent blessing, uh, the second reckoning will be one of power and great glory. And he will deal decisively with his enemies. He'll push them um, out of the gate. He will make all creation new. And he'll reveal all of the injustice that right now goes hidden and undealt with. Now, why would Jesus wait between the two reckonings? You ever wonder that? Why is it taking him so long? One of the people that knew of Jesus' grace was Peter. I mean, Peter was a blockhead and failed Jesus a lot and experienced the patience of Jesus. And here's what Peter said. He said, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Jesus is patient with us. He's compassionate for us. And he's going to come the second time to put all things right, but his delay is a sign of grace. Do you want to live in a world of perfect justice? Be careful. None of us would survive. None of us would stand. And that's why he came as a lion. That's why he came as a lamb before he comes as a lion. Uh, The one who has and will do the most for justice is patient which is the fruit of the Spirit. We could all learn it. I could learn it. He's also full of love. He's also full of joy. Um, here's how Rachel Denhollander articulates this balance. Rachel Denhollander was an Olympic um, gymnast. Um, she was uh, sexually abused at the hands of her um, Olympic uh, gymnast doctor, whose name is Larry Nasser, And um, she was one of the first people to speak out to the Indianapolis newspaper about her abuse. And she says this, the damage of assault is extreme and it is lifelong. As much as someone forgives their abuser, as much hope as is found in the gospel, we don't get complete restoration this side of heaven. It does not happen. That's why the hope of heaven is so glorious. But the suffering here on earth is very real and it does not go away simply because you forgive and release bitterness. The women are going to live myself included, she says, with lifelong consequences of the sexual assault, and the vast majority of this never needed to happen. So um, the interviewer asked her, what does it mean to you that you forgive Larry Nasser?" And she says, it means that I trust in God's justice, and that I release bitterness and anger and a desire for personal vengeance. It does not mean that I minimize or mitigate or excuse what he has done. It does not mean that I pursue justice on earth any less zealously. It simply means that I release personal vengeance against him, and I trust God's justice, whether he chooses to meet that out purely eternally or both in heaven and on earth. And we can say that 
God has used Rachel to bring about his justice here on earth, in part. But you know what? He's doing that through all of us. Jesus is coming as a judge. He is revealing and exposing evil. He is making things right. And in part, he's using you and I. So here's where the preacher's going to end. Why do we go through all of this? Well, this is so you know he's not being flippant. But here's where he ends. Um, Seeing all that he's seen and wanting God's justice, he can still say what he says in chapter 8, verse 15. He says, and I commend joy. I commend joy. You know, joy is commended here in Ecclesiastes. In the New Testament, it's commanded. It becomes, if, you, if we are not people of joy, we're in disobedience to the God of joy. We're resisting the Holy Spirit who brings joy. He says, for man or for woman has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful, for this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him or her under the sun. Listen, if God can be trusted, as Rachel Denhollander said, if he can be trusted to carry out ultimate justice, we can be free to be people of joy. Or as Miroslav Volv noted, if we have a God who will deal decisively with violence, we ourselves can then have the freedom to lay aside violence. Someone who lived through a genocide himself. We can be free to carry out small acts of obedience to love our neighbor and seek their good. Out of our joy in God, we can seek justice for all God's created. You know, um, Pastor Lee and Shunjat seek justice for the abandoned children of South Korea. They still do. And what keeps them going? What's the fuel inside their souls and bodies? Let me tell you, it's not rage. Watch the documentary. You'll see it's not rage. It's not bitterness that fuels them. Rage can fuel you. It's corrosive. It'll eat you out from the inside out. You'll be so full of anxiety for all of the people who aren't listening to you and all the systems that you can't fix. It will wear you out. That does no one any good. The preacher knows that. Jesus knows that. Pastor Lee and Shunja know that. Uh, Joy keeps them going. Love keeps them going. It leads them to sacrifice their money and their lives and their independence. It was out of joy that Pastor Lee said, God, I will give my life for these children. And it was out of joy that Jesus Christ said to the Father, God, I will give my life for these children. It was joy. It was for the joy set before him that he went to the cross to show us true justice, the merciful justice of the Father. It was out of joy that he said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. It was out of joy that he ate and drank and died in the presence of God, in the presence of everyone God gave him to love. And then when he was resurrected, he gave his spirit of joy to us. You see this, when he breathes his Holy Spirit on his discouraged disciples, man, something wakes up inside of them that had died discouragement became joy, anger became joy. The, whole, uh, the early church was full of joy, and it was from the breath of Jesus. He can give you that breath. He can give you his joy. 
You know what that does? It gives, gives us freedom, freedom to be creative, freedom to um, take delight in every moment we have. I mean, we can't solve all the problems of the world. We can't even fix one micro problem that we identify. What can we do? We can only do what we can do. We can do it with joy. We can host people in our homes, feed them meals. We can give someone a hug. We can, we can carry out justice in our vocation. And we can thank God for every moment we have in this miracle called life. We can do it in the power of the Spirit, in the presence of God, in the presence of everyone God's called us to love. And along the way, we can just trust, as Rachel Denhollander is able to abandon outcomes of justice to the God of justice. We can do the same thing, and it will give us the same resources that she has to keep going. It'll give us the capacity to bring together justice and joy and to do so in the name of Jesus Christ.